Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading! Hello and welcome to Bookworms. My name is Bex and I love books and I am recapping my best of 2023 every month. I chose a book of the month here at Fun Kids and I'm going to whiz you through them. A little kind of, um, I guess, reverse through the year. So let's start right back in January when I had a little chat with Elle McNichol all about Like a Curse. How would you kind of like pitch this book to listeners who've maybe not read the first one? Right. Well, that's the tricky thing is talking about a sequel without spoiling book number one. Well, Ramia is a young witch, I can say. She's an unconventional young witch, but she has a lot of affinity with water. She can see magical creatures. Other people can't. And she thinks, oh my gosh, this is the best thing in the world. I'm a witch. I'm going to take over the world. I'm going to do great things. And her family says, no, you're going to Loch Ness with your grandmother and your aunt. You're going to learn how to do magic properly and you're going to stay out of trouble. So everyone's in a big house in Loch Ness and they're not allowed to go anywhere. And Ramia itching to get out and fight and um an old enemy from the first book which I, again I'm trying not to spoil uh, a baddie who is mentioned in the first book has come to Edinburgh and has taken over Edinburgh and Rami is not going to sit idly by in Loch Ness and let that happen so she sneaks out every night with her cousin to try and, and try and save the save Scotland I think that's yeah that's great that, without do. spoiling there's there's also something in the water at Loch Ness which you wouldn't you wouldn't believe <laughs> but <laughs> But yeah, there's all kinds of magic going on. So I was a bit um, apprehensive when I went into the book because I was like, oh my goodness, it's been a few months since I read the first one. Will I remember? And will I be able to catch up? But actually, yeah. super quickly, I was like back in the story, which was great. Oh, good. And also it made me think like, if you happen to pick up this book, maybe in the library or bookshop and you haven't read the first one, don't worry. because you Don't worry at all. Yeah. And I know a year is a long time when you're young. I remember when I would finish a book when I was young and turn the last page and it would say, coming next year. And I'd go, well, that's ages away. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely. Ever away. So yeah, don't don't worry. I do put little refreshers in the first few chapters that will catch everybody up. Um, and if you haven't read the first one, now you can read the whole series because it's a duology. It's both of them. It's finished after this. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully people can jump right back in with Ramia Marley and uh, the new characters we have as well. And there are so many things to love about the book. So um, Ramia, I think she really develops uh, even mm. more so in her personality because she realises that she kind of she's very strong and she's great and she's very clever but also she she needs to stop making excuses for herself and kind yeah. of believe in herself more yeah. as well but also Ramia has a very specific thing called main character syndrome where she <laughs> believes that she's the only person that can fix problems and she's the only person that can solve mysteries and save the world and and because it's a fantasy story she, you know she thinks she knows that she's in a story like that she's got magical powers she thinks I am the main character and it's not really true she sort of has to learn that other people <laughs> exist and have things to offer and that she needs to maybe reflect a bit more on her on herself and I think we all go through a phase like that um, and she becomes much stronger by the end and I think much more settled with, with herself um, but has to fight a few monsters to, to get there <laughs> Like a Curse is out right now Yay. and thank you so much Elle for telling us all about it No, thank you for having me in the studio Yay. <laughs> 
So one of my favourite books in February was the very funny Montgomery Bonbon by Alistair Beckett King. If you don't know much about this book, it was a kind of mystery whodunit comedy adventure all about Montgomery who tried to solve crimes with her granddad. I absolutely loved it. I've read your book, guys, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I've really, really loved hearing the story of Montgomery Bonbon, who is never seen in the same room as Bonnie Montgomery. Uh, Alistair, can you tell me a little bit about your lead character? Yes. Well, Bonnie is a 10-year-old girl uh, who's brilliant at solving mysteries. But uh, as you and I both know, 10-year-olds generally aren't allowed to solve murders. Mm. And um, the ingenious solution that Bonnie has come up with is that she puts on a beret and a raincoat and a huge bristly moustache, and she becomes Montgomery Bonbon, who is a distinguished foreign detective, uh, but nobody's quite sure what country he's supposed to be from. Yeah, I did love um, the the phrases and the accents varying a, li- a little bit through the book on purpose. Obviously, that's the whole point. Uh, were you, would we say inspired by Poirot, perhaps? <laughs> oh, certainly. I'm, I'm a huge fan of especially David Suchet's Poirot. Um, I think he's wonderful. Um, but uh, but Bonnie's grasp of uh, French is not that strong, so she slides into German and Italian every so often. We meet your your character and her granddad, and they are in the middle, literally, literally straight away, like something exciting happens, uh, which means we are reading the book and we are in it, we are on the go. Um, and this isn't the first case that she has solved. You give us little snippets here and there of little mysteries that... Uh, Montgomery, aka Bonnie, has also been involved in. Yes, that's right. I'm I'm very impatient when I watch uh, or read a mystery because um, you know at the start there's just loads of rich people in a country house and I just can't wait for one of them to die. I'm like, come on, get on with it. <laughs> and so so the murder happens in in chapter one. There's there's no messing around and uh, straight in straight away somebody has di- has died. Um, so Grandpa Banks and uh, and Bonnie are in the the Hornville Museum which is a big creaky old museum full of bones and dinosaur skins and that sort of thing. And then the lights go out and there's a scream upstairs. And uh, Bonnie quickly finds out that uh, a valuable artifact, the Widlington Eagle, has been stolen. So she and Grandpa Banks, well, she quickly turns into Montgomery Bonbon and they make their way upstairs to try to... uh, to solve the case. And she's lucky that her grandpa is is pretty receptive to all of um, Montgomery's quirks, should we say, and plans, and kind of just goes along with her and just like, yeah, we know we've solved mysteries before, let's do it again. Yeah, Grandpa Max is my favourite character because he's super supportive of, uh, of of Bonnie when he's a grandpa, and when, when she's Montgomery Bon Bon, he's just Banks, the detective's assistant, and he's, uh, he's the, a loyal detective's assistant. And he does what he's told. He takes photographs of the crime scene and he, he tries to help and usually makes things slightly worse. <laughs> so when you were plotting this, did you know in advance like who the murderer was going to be and, and what the way of the mystery was going to work? Or did you write it and just see where it went to? I, I would be so good to just find out at the end yourself when you're <laughs> writing it. That'd be great. But I wonder who did this. Oh, my goodness, it was that person. Um, but no, I, had to, I, I planned it. And of course, all good plans go wrong. So the the original plan changed and changed in the process of writing it. But I planned very, very hard, just not very, very well. Well, still your plan. That's the important thing, right? Yeah. You just need to have a plan. It doesn't need to be a good plan, as as Bonnie demonstrates during the book on several occasions. Absolutely. She still gets there in the end. Well, guys, thank you so much for telling us all about uh, the brand new book, Murder at the Museum. I believe it came out um, earlier this month, but hopefully... I'm assuming we'll see you in the studio for the next one. We can chat about more uh, Montgomery Bonbon mysteries. And uh, Alistair, thank you so much for chatting to us. Thank you. 
In March, I read Onyeka and the Rise of the Rebels by Tola Akogu, and I have to say, it was incredible. It's all about a girl with super-powered hair who is trying to stop an evil villain's dastardly plot. It was incredible. I read your book today and uh, loved every second of it. Oh, yay. So glad to hear that. It's the second book in Onyeka's kind of series. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you tell us where we find it? If you've not read the first book, Mm -hmm. where do we find her in the second book? Well, in the second book, Onyeka is very much reeling from all of the revelations and the secrets that, you know, she's uncovered from the first book. And it's a lot. It's a lot Mm. for a child to take in. And so she's she's got to grapple with these big emotions um, with the feelings that she's now having to deal with fallout from what's happened you know she still has to find her parents so there's that mission to complete and also defeat the big bad so we meet her at this point where you know her and the rest of her friends are trying to figure out what their next plan of action is they're not agreeing necessarily on how to proceed so it's kind of learning to come back together as a team embrace the different emotions because she now knows how to use her powers but it's that big question of of when to use your powers, how <laughs> to use your powers. Just because you have them doesn't mean that you always kind of need to bust them out. So it's some big themes, some big moments for her. But, you know, she's got her friends rallying around her. So mm-hmm. ultimately, she she figures it out. She really does. And I've got to say, well, first of all, if, if our listeners don't know, her power lies with her hair. It does, yeah. It's um, So she basically has psychokinesis with mm-hmm. her hair and she can control her hair with her mind and it acts like additional appendages. So she can sort of like throw out her hair like a whip um, and knock something out of someone's hand or use it to grab an object and, you know, retract it back to her. So it's it's pretty sort of cinematic, kind of, if you can visualise a power like yeah. that. And it's, it's pretty cool (laughs) it's amazing and so she goes to this school where lots of people have powers but then in the second book uh she has to fight a little bit she has to her and her friends have to fight not only to find her mum and dad but also against like you say this big bad character this big bad yeah so the first book onyeka and the academy of the sun was very much based in this school setting and onyeka we kind of see this nigeria this futuristic alternate history nigeria through her eyes and discover this world with her she also is discovering it um and as i said all the secrets are revealed she figures out who the big bad is and so book two rise of the rebels sees her um away from um the score and we see more of nigeria we see Mm -hmm. more of this different setting as they basically go on the run (laughs) and they're being hunted down by the big bad so it's kind of trying not to get caught trying to find new allies um with the rogues that were introduced in book one Mm -hmm. and so it's we need friends if we're going to defeat the big bad and not everything is not as it seems much like book one actually (laughs) things still aren't as quite as they seem and we're we're with them journeying with them as they really kind of get to the heart of what's going on because you've got this character who wants to basically try to take over Nigeria yeah. and that's uh, that's not a great thing to be doing he, he's trying to rule everybody and uh, yeah, get his own way well there's always the big bad I mean what's a big bad if they're not trying to take over the world yeah right <laughs> <laughs> you know it's yeah so yeah we do the big bad is and it's I think the best villains you can sort of understand their motivation mm-hmm, a little mm-hmm. bit even though it's quite nefarious and you're thinking yeah that's not great but I can sort of see why you think that's a good idea yeah. it's just the way you're going about it is probably not the best yeah. so we do get to kind of dig in a a little bit more on the big bad's motivation why they think what they're doing because they are sort of misguided mm-hmm. they're 
well, I was gonna say heart is in the right place, but I'm not even sure I'd go that far. I know what you mean, though. yeah, because there's a bit later, I don't want to ruin it too much, but there's yeah. a bit later where it's kind of put in context, I would mm. say, and it's kind of, it, it, it's, it becomes relatable or understandable or people, it's about protecting, Yeah, I guess. it is, it's protecting a future. So the big bad thinks that they are, what they're ultimately doing is protecting everybody. Mm-hmm. And so the damage that's been done in the wake of that is seen as collateral damage and worth it in order to achieve the bigger aim. Mm-hmm. But the question is who gets to make that choice yeah. when lives are being impacted, you know, from the person whose life is being changed for them, it's not a small thing. So it's that idea that when we chase the greater good and we do damage along the way, is it worth it? Uh, Tala, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, Onyeka and the Rise of the Rebels is out. When is it out? Is it out, it's out now? It's out now. Oh Everywhere. my goodness. Amazing. So in which case, everybody go and buy it, go and look at it, go and get it from a library. Yes, please. Do what you can do. And uh, hopefully we'll see you for the third book. Next up, April was Nell and the Cave Bear. Now, this was written by Martin Brown, who you may actually know as the illustrator to all of the Horrible Histories books. He's also an author as well, and Nell and the Cave Bear was a beaut. First of all, we need to talk about your brand new book, Nell and the Cave Bear. This is The Journey Home, so it's the second book in uh, Nell and Cave Bear's stories. Uh, Can you tell us, if we haven't read the first, where do we pick up? Well, Nell has got this wonderful... Her best friend in the world is... um... A cave bear. Uh, it's set in Stone Age times, Neolithic times. She's an orphan, and not many kids around her her age. And just so happens to have found this sweet little fuzzy creature, and they have become great friends. And turns out that the rest of the clan think that maybe as the bear gets older, it wouldn't be the best companion for a child to have a ten foot cave bear hanging around and there is concern and at some point in the first book the elders of the village think that it might be best to give the pet away Uh, now overhears this and thinks that's the worst thing in the world and who wants their best friend to be separated from their best friend or someone to give your pet away and so she runs away she ends up floating down the river on a log and the log ends up in the sea and she gets washed ashore on a beach by, well, some relatives, really. There's another clan, the fisher folk on the sea, and the seaside clan take her in. She's staying with the sea clan, uh, with Cave Bear, and the rest of the clan have now joined them. Yeah, that's where the new book begins. You also have a pretty good baddie in this book, uh, somebody who is out to catch Cave Bear in particular, and you've got a whole of the clan who are trying to uh, trying to get involved. But yeah, well, it's, um, every book needs a baddie. Sure. <laughs> it's one of those things where you scratch the surface with baddies, and maybe they're not as bad as you and they might like <laughs> you to think. But yes, the Woodland Clan are the sort of the grumpy ones that split off from the other two clan many, many, many generations ago, and they live in the dank and dark forest, and they're a bit grumpy with the world. You know, in, in the Neolithic times, everyone hunts. That's what you have to do to survive. But they've crossed over to enjoying the hunt a little bit too much, shall we say. There's a good bit in the book where you kind of explain it. You're like, yes, we have to hunt, but it doesn't mean we hate animals. It just means it has to happen. Yeah. And I, I think most of us feel that way. No one no one likes killing things for a hoot. Yeah. But it's when it you know crosses over into something like that that becomes a problem. 
the uh, clan leader of the Woodland clan is thwarted in the first book. And he's, you know, an old guy and he's sort of grumpy about the whole thing. Doesn't want to be beaten by a, a little girl and a bear cub. So he's plotting revenge. Uh, Martin Brown, thank you so much for telling us all about Nell and the Cave Bear. The Journey Home is out right now. It's such a beautiful book and it's such a great story. Um, and hopefully we will speak to you again for many more adventures. I hope so. That would be huge. I'll look forward to it. In May, we had L.D. Lipitsky tell us all about their brand new hero, Jamie, who is struggling at school, making friends and just finding their way in the world. We may know you from Strange Worlds Travel Agency, but now we've got a brand new book. We've got Jamie in the world. Uh, Tell us a little bit about lovely Jamie. So Jamie is a perfectly happy, ordinary kid who's in year six. Um, So yeah, it's a bit of a deviation from Strange Worlds because I've Mm. gone from sort of magical worlds to the real world. Uh, So yep, they're in year six and they go to this meeting about what's going to happen when they go for year seven and they're doing all the school transfer stuff. And they found out that their school choices for year seven are going to be split. There's going to be a school for boys and there's going to be a school for girls. And Jamie is a non-binary kid. They're not a boy or a girl. And nobody's thought about which school they're going to go to. And to make matters even worse, Jamie's got two best friends, which isn't the worst bit. That's an amazing bit. (laughs) But one of their best friends is a girl, Daisy. She's going to the girls' school. The other one, Ash, has chosen to go to the boys' school. So whichever school Jamie chooses, they're going to end up losing touch with one of their very best friends. Yeah, I mean, this is a big moment in anybody's life, right? When you have to go to secondary school and it is trickier for Jamie. And um, it is, yeah, it's worth pointing out as well that for the whole friendship group, it's really hard, right? Because they're going to be split up no matter what. It is. And they've been, they're the kind of trio who've been together since they were in nappies. You know, they've always been the three of them. One of their mums calls them the Bermuda Triangle because they're a bit notorious and things tend to go a little bit wrong when they're around. But they really are like ride or die friends forever. And the news that one of them is going to end up on their own, no matter what happens, is, is really upsetting for all of them. Yeah, it, it, oh, it is really tough. I remember doing that, that thing at school where you had to pick your next school and it was really hard. And of course, for Jamie, it is even tougher. But Jamie and and their friends are so amazing together and they kind of come together and there is joy in the book as well, right? Oh, so much so, yeah, definitely. So when Jamie's friends, Daisy and Ash, find out about uh, the fact that no one's considered where Jamie's going to go, they decide they're going to try and do something about it because kids are so much better than grown-ups at taking a stand and trying to get things fixed and you know making a difference in the world. As we all know, grown-ups don't always listen as much as we probably should. <laughs> So, yeah, so the three of them set out to raise awareness and to get people to to recognize the fact that, you know, the, these split schools aren't just hurting um, non-binary kids, but, you know, they're splitting up friendships. And they they start a, a poster campaign in school to raise awareness and they wallpaper a library from floor to ceiling and they get into trouble about it. But things don't stop there. I know. I don't want to ruin it too much, but there is uh, there is an incredible scene in the book, which I noticed on Twitter the other day. Uh, the I didn't realise the drawing on the cover of the book is a real place. 
It is, yeah. So I don't think it's a spoiler because it is on the cover. Their awareness campaign eventually becomes a rooftop protest on top of the council house in Nottingham, which is a real place. And the cover, which is illustrated by Harry Woodgate, fits absolutely perfectly with the real council house in Nottingham. You can line the building up with the book absolutely perfectly. So yeah, it's it's almost um, surreal seeing it just there fitting absolutely perfectly, yeah. even though the characters do look like giants when you hold the book up. <laughs> Oh, but it was really satisfying to see your picture, though, in the comparison. It all fitted together. It was like a perfect jigsaw puzzle. It is, yeah. I mean, Harry is an absolutely wonderful illustrator, and I'm so thrilled that um, that Harry and Sam chose that scene to go on the cover because it is a real moment of celebration. It starts off as a protest. You know, they're up on the roof waving this flag, you know, trying to raise awareness, and eventually people join them and come together, and this protest becomes a party of celebrating people be just being thrilled about who they are and who their friends are. Jamie is out right now. The, the cover is incredible. You can't miss it. And the story is brilliant. Uh, LD, thank you for telling us all about it. Thank you so much for having me. In June, my chosen book was The City of Stolen Magic by Nazneen Ahmed Patak. It was an incredible adventure through Victorian England and also India. And I loved it. Now, I uh, received a copy of your book in the post. First of all, it's beautiful. <laughs> I mean, what, I shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but what, what a beaut. It's a big historical adventure, basically. Starting with Trompette, tell us how we find our main character. Where do we find her? Well, we are in Bengal in India in 1855 at the beginning of the story. And we meet Chomper. She's living in a village in Bengal with her mother. And they are both witches. So Chomper has a very powerful kind of magic. And her mother's got a different kind of magic. Chomper's forbidden from using her magic because it's so powerful. And she can't really control it. She decides being rather impatient and confident young lady that she's going to take masses into her own hands and she's going to prove to her um, that she can control her magic and she should be allowed to use it and then things go terribly wrong for her unfortunately <laughs> there is a disaster and as a result Chompa's mother is abducted by a group of sinister pale men and Chompa doesn't know who they are where they've come from she has to find her mother. She has to find these men and why they've taken her. She discovers that magical people are being abducted and stolen for profit as part of the colonial project of the British ruling India. And she has to travel to London where people being taken to be sold in a museum. She's got to find her mother. She's got to get some friends to help her along the way. She travels there on a genie-powered ship <laughs> with a tree instead of sails. And she makes some friends, but she also discovers that the battle that she's got to win is not just to get her mother back, but to get justice. For all of the magic people and the people yes. who've been taken away. Yeah. Of course. Um, so, what I mean, what a lovely little bit of the book you've given us there that is amazing I need to talk about Chomper such an incredible character strong and really you know has to take it upon herself to really save the day essentially Yes, I mean, she's bold, she is impatient she's always trying to take things into her own hands sometimes with 
not so great results um but she's also clumsy and she's just but she's never really had any friends and one of the things that she has to learn on her journey is how to work with others how to listen how to um let other people especially children of her own age into her world and get to know them so it's really interesting where she ends up at the end of the story and compared to where she begins because I think if I knew I was magic, I don't think I'd listen to a lot of people. <laughs> exactly. So you kind of get how she... I, I, why imagine having magic and then not being allowed to use it? I'd be Imagine's, curious. Yeah. I'd, I would... Cause and it, she really is. <laughs> yeah, and she's, she's really good at it, right? She's yeah. really powerful, really strong. Yes. And it's immediate. Her magic makes things happen in the world immediately. And the magic that she's being made to learn by her mom is a very slow type of magic. It's intricate. You have to do lots of writing and you have to learn a language in order to do it. And and she's really not wanting to do any of that. <laughs> she's like, what's the point at the beginning of the story? Part of it is actually learning why her mother's actually trying to get her to learn all of this as well. Uh, Nazneen, thank you so much for telling us all about it. Thank you so much for having me. July was one of my favourite books, not only of the summer, but also of the year. It was The Wonder Brothers by Frank Cottrell Boyce and illustrated by the brilliant Stephen Lenton. I've just read your new book, The Wonder Brothers, and I loved it, man. It's so so much fun. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, it should be fun. It's set in Blackpool. That's the capital of capital city of fun. The capital of fun. Well, I mean, also, let's face it, you, you put a lot of it in Las Vegas. And I wondered, did you do that so you could go to Las Vegas yourself and, and pretend it was like a kind of research? I didn't, though, because I mean, normally do quite a lot of research. And the book sort of took itself off to Las Vegas. Halfway <laughs> through, and it's like, I don't know anything about Las Vegas. Why are we going here? So it felt a bit like... The kids in the story have basically gone to Las Vegas by mistake. I love that. Yeah. So have you, have you never been there yourself? Did you not go yourself? No, never been. Never been. I just had to watch lots of, um, you, there's a lot of, it seems like quite a tough place. So there's like a lot of YouTube videos about how to survive Las Vegas. And it does seem like quite a hostile environment if you're a child. So that's obviously great if you write a children's book. Hey, it works really well because I, I have been to Las Vegas and I was like, I recognise these things and these themes and these oh, places. Really? I genuinely thought you'd been there. Oh, that's good that you think that. That's great. I have to say, Stephen Lenton, who did all the wonderful drawings, he's been. And I think some of those drawings are happy memories of his. All right. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah, we have to give a shout out to Stephen Lenton, who is um, a big friend of Fun Kids. And also, yeah, his illustrations are incredible for this book, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, Stephen's always brilliant, but these spreads in this are so uh, magical, you know, and full of light. You know, Las Vegas is mm. all, Las Vegas and Blackpool, they're all about light, aren't they? They've all, they've all got these amazing kind of flashing lights and stuff. And he's really caught that excitement of neon. He really has. And yeah, we've mentioned Las Vegas, but we've got to give big shout outs here to Blackpool because Blackpool is almost like a character in the story itself, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially the tower, which of course disappears. <laughs> yeah, well, this is the thing, yeah. And I, th I think, you know, one of the things I love about writing children's fiction is sort of pointing to the things that exist that are already wonderful. Mm hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's like there's, there's, a, there's a room for kind of inventing dragons and hippogriffs and stuff like that. There's also room to say, actually, these things that really exist are amazing. And I think Blackpool Tower is one of those things that people forgot is incredible. It's an incredible thing. It's got a circus at the bottom. It's got the, the top floor is glass. So you can walk over the glass floor and look straight down at the street 500 feet below, which is absolutely terrifying and completely thrilling at the same time. <laughs> 
Yeah, I haven't been to Black Hole for a few years, actually, and I didn't know that was a thing. And of course, obviously, that's mentioned in the book as well. And what we should tell, tell the listeners, the, the tower goes missing, right? That's the whole big thing in the book. The tower vanishes in much the way that um, the Statue of Liberty vanished. In David Copperfield did this famous trick where he vanished the Statue of Liberty. And Blackpool Tower is actually bigger than the Statue of Liberty. So a famous magician vanishes Blackpool Tower at the beginning and then forgets to bring it back. So it's left to our heroes to go and get it back. Yeah, we've got three cousins here who are having the time of their lives, let's face it. You've got Middy, Nathan and Brody, and they they need to, well, first of all, they love magic themselves. They've got a vested interest in that, would you say? Yeah, they've got they, they've got a magic act. And you said those three cousins, but you've missed out the rabbit. There is a great rabbit. Of course, of course. <laughs> they've got a showbiz rabbit who, you know, is the kind of rabbit you're supposed to pull out of a hat, but it's really addicted to showbiz. And it's a little too big to fit in the hats. So I'm very proud of this rabbit who's called Queenie. <laughs> I just love, I love the phrase showbiz rabbit. It just makes me laugh. Yeah, she's, I think she's a rescue rabbit, but she's obviously been rescued from a magician at some point in the past. Brilliant. Well, Frank, thank you so much for chatting to us all about it. Um, thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thank you very, very much. I had a really great time. Hello, everyone. I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading! In August, we had a historical book. Now, this was by Robin Scott Elliott, and it was called Sweet Skies, all about what happened in Germany after World War II when American pilots were dropping sweets on German children. I uh, love your book so much. It is incredible. Oh, that's really nice of you to say so. So the book is called Sweet Skies. I, I didn't know anything about it, didn't know what to expect. And honestly, it really tapped into, I mean, a lot of the things I absolutely love, including um, history and chocolate, to be honest. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about it and where we find your character Otto? Yeah, so chocolate is a very important part of it. and I'll, I'll come <laughs> back to that. But So we need to get in a time machine and head back to 1948 and to Berlin. So we're just after the Second World War, and Berlin then was an absolutely flattened, ruined city. So I think it, seven out of every ten buildings were flattened. So if you go into your street and count ten houses, seven of them were gone. So this is an absolutely ruined city. And Otto lived in a cellar with his mum, and his big dream is becoming a pilot. And at this moment in time, the Russians had surrounded Berlin and cut off all the roads and railways. So the only way in and out of Berlin was by um, planes, so the American pilots were flying in all this, all this food, and Ottergum's obsessed with the pilots, and he wants to become a pilot, and his big plan, but he's a bit of a daydreamer, Otto, is he thinks he can persuade, and he can make friends with a pilot, and persuade them to take him back to America, and then he can become a pilot. It's a bit bonkers, but this is the start of a dangerous adventure for Otto, and he's going to get himself and his best friends, Carl and Ilse, into all sorts of trouble, because Berlin in 1948 is a really dangerous, um, really dangerous city. Yeah, it's not something I knew a lot about because obviously at school you're taught about the world wars, but not kind of what happened afterwards and certainly uh, not what happened in Berlin. So what was Berlin and Germany like at this point? Because you say there were Russians and Americans there. So the country was divided into two between the Russians on one side and then the British, the Americans and the French and Berlin was the same. So there are these sort of barriers all, all through the city. There was also 
you know, there were very few shops and there were, everything was still rations. There wasn't much food. What sort of caught my attention was these children who had grown up under the Nazis and they'd been to school under the Nazis because um, all the characters, Otto and Carla and Ilse, are 13 years old. So all their lives had been under the Nazis and, and now they're being told everything they were taught, all the evil stuff they were taught at school that they didn't know was wrong, they're now being told was wrong and they're having to sort of restart their lives again in this absolutely mm. ruined city. But I think... I think you see this with children throughout history that they are really good at just getting on with their lives and they still live their lives and look for adventure and fun wherever they can. They absolutely do adapt to it. And of course, it all kind of starts um, where we find them when um, the Americans come along because Otto is a bit obsessed with the American pilots. He's completely obsessed. So in the story, Otto's dad was a pilot, but the Americans are just something completely different. Because if also you think... Well, these kids, they've never had very much to eat, so most of them are sort of skinny. And Otto's actually, he's lost an eye during the war, and none of his friends has lost a leg. Um, and lots of them are lost parents. Um, and suddenly these pilots appear, so they must have looked like kind of aliens from another world. They, they look tall, and I make a point in the book, they've all got big, white, shiny teeth. Um, and they drop out of the sky, and they look really cool in their leather flying jackets and all that, and their sunglasses. So Otto's just obsessed by them, and he loves the idea of getting up in the sky and getting away from this kind of very grey, dusty world that he's stuck in. Um, Well, Robin, thank you so much for telling us all about Sweet Skies. I genuinely really did love the book. And um, it's out right now, so everybody can grab it from wherever they get their books from, right? Yes, it should be in all Waterstones and other bookshops and online and everywhere, yeah. Thank you so much for telling us all about it. Thanks very much for having me. In September, we had a celebrity in the house. It was my old pal Dermot O'Leary to tell me about his brand new book, Wings of Glory, about some birds in World War II who try to save the war for us. It's been a long time, man, um, and you've been a busy man. You've brought us a new book. Ah, uh, thank you. I, I've, I've, yeah, I've loved doing this book. It's, it's been a. God, when did I, where are we now? I probably finished it at the start of the year, right? And then you sort of send it off. And there's loads of questions come back. Like, why have you done this? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is this true? Is this historically accurate? Uh, but um, uh, yeah, I love every every stage of it, to be honest with you. It's such an enjoyable thing to do. So if the listeners don't know, we've gone from cats to birds. Uh, you love an animal. And this is Wings of Glory, which I... Well, let's go back to it then. Is it historically accurate, Dermot? How much of this have you researched properly? Uh, no. Uh, during the Second World War, what a lot of people don't know is that the animals are fighting on our behalf. Mm-hmm. And uh, with... with some notable exceptions. And we had a prime minister. So whilst Winston Churchill was in charge, the animal prime minister was Sir Bertie Bulldog. Yeah. And um, Bertie Bulldog signed an official secrets act. They didn't want any uh, records to be disclosed up until now about Linus the Swift and Linus's incredible actions during the Battle of Britain when he signed up for the Royal Bird Force. So the story is, true story, yeah. uh, that Linus the Bird and his sister, Linus the Swift and his sister Ava, uh, were born in Kent and then they migrated down to sub-Saharan Africa. And then during the war, the call went out for all birds of a flying age and uh, especially speedsters. And the swift is one of the speediest birds there is to come back and fight on the front line to harass the uh, German enemy planes coming over um, by any means necessary. But basically the mantra of the Royal Bird Force was in poo we trust. So the idea is uh, they have to poo, use their poo as much as they can on the enemy windshields, on the planes, the planes then get distracted and then the actual human RAF can come and, uh, and mop up uh, after all their hard work. So Linus signs up for the uh, to, to be in the Royal Bird Force, but when he gets here, 
He's just he's desperate. He wants to fight in the front line because he's a swift and they're the fastest birds. But equally fast are the peregrine falcons. Uh, and so he wants to fight in the squadron of peregrine falcons, but they won't have him because he's not um, a kind of blue blood because the peregrines are very much considered the, you know, the, the, the proper flying boys and girls. So Linus ends up in a squadron with uh, a magpie who steals everything, sure. uh, an owl who won't get out of bed before eight in the, uh, in the evening. Uh, so he ends up in this raggle-tagging squadron, but somehow, he he ends up being pivotal with, to world history. What, should we just stop the interview there? Should we just done? Done, I'm done. <laughs> I do feel like I've actually just told you probably a bit too much. No, but, I love it. Um, no, that was, that was such, such a cracking summary of the book because, yeah, we meet Linus the Swift, uh, him and his sister Ava. They go off to the UK to try and fight for country and king and country. And, um, and yeah, it, Linus is so excited. And also, like you say, he's a very quick bird, right? And at first, people don't take him seriously. Yeah, he's he's almost too quick. And also he's very young and he's very raw. And all he wants to do is is come over and, and, and fly with the peregrine falcons. And of course, he isn't a peregrine. And so he can't do what they do, but also they can't do what he do. Uh, he does. So uh, I, I love that about it. Like, I love my birds. I've always loved, I've always been a sort of keen bird watcher. And uh, my best friend Joe, my oldest friend Joe, is he got me into birds when I was about eleven, and I've always loved them ever since. So you know, writing for the books about Toto was wonderful, and I love the fact that to create a world where the animals have got their own transport system yeah. and government and police and all those sort of things is so interesting, and and actually sort of that's what was cool, almost my starting point because I, I I was not, I, yeah, I haven't finished my Toto books, but I thought, well, what, what else do I want to write about? And I love history and the Second World War is sort of my, you know, my favourite part of history. But maybe, I don't quite know why, I like the idea of ordinary people put in extraordinary circumstance. And I love the idea of, it's quite recent history. So for me, my grandparents' generation would have been part of it. For a lot of your listeners, it would be the great grandparents' generation. But, you know, my father grew up you know, in Ireland, but in the, you know, in the 40s. So he grew up you know being aware of what was going on in the second world war so it's not that long ago is my point and you know it's 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 kind of so it's kind of recent history and these incredible stories you know that that, that you can read about that that humans kind of you know this kind of normal everyday people suddenly put in life-changing circumstance i find that absolutely fascinating and we always ask the question what would i have done Mm. and then i thought well i I really enjoy writing for kids and 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 through the prism and and the personification of like animals so hey why don't i do that why don't i take my love of history and combine the two so it's kind of there will be actually echoes in in the books coming forward there'll be echoes of kind of 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 the people that went before toto who worked for the government brilliant well thank you so much for chatting to us thank you my absolute pleasure In October, I went spooky. Well, it was the season after all. I chose Carrie Hope Fletcher's Double Trouble Society, full of witches, mayhem and magic. Now, you've brought us a a little gift of a brand new book, the sequel to the Double Trouble Society. You've brought us a brand brand new, like, adventure with your gang. Um, If we haven't had a chance to read the first one, Mm -hmm. where do we find Ivy and Maggie? Okay, so... 
Maggie and Ivy are two best friends who happen to be born on the same day, at the same minute, of the same year, and they are best friends and they live one house apart, but the house in between theirs is this sort of old, dilapidated house that's been abandoned for years. And then all of a sudden, this very mysterious stranger turns up and there's a legend within the town that they live in called Crowwood Peak, and it's the legend of the Crowwood Witch, because 300 years ago, there was a witch who had sold her soul in order to continue her reign of terror forever. And the only way that that pact that she had made would come true is if she ate the hearts of 13 children. Mm, it's a tall order. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she only manages to, to capture 12 children and is stopped by her sister by the time she gets to the 13th. So she never claims that 13th child. So the legend is that she will one day return 300 years later to capture that 13th child. So when this mysterious stranger turns up at this house, Maggie and Ivy are certain that it's the Crowwood Witch come to claim the 13th child. So that's the first book. That's the Double Trouble Society. Excellent summary. Um, Love it, yeah. I know, very cheerful. Great. (laughs) And then the Double Trouble Society and the Worst Curse, which is the sequel... We find Maggie and Ivy again. This time, they, there are three new kids at school called Spencer Sparrow, Harriet Harper and Orville Thomas. But they might not be who they say they are. And it's all about Maggie and Ivy discovering who these kids are and maybe what they are. Yes, because as they join school, as all people do when they join new schools, are a bit nervous, yep. which means they are acting a little bit suspiciously, a little bit Absolutely. weird. Absolutely. It could just be normal nerves, but it could be something else. Yeah. Now, I don't. Wanna, this is the problem, Carrie. I don't want to ruin too much <laughs> for people who haven't read the book yet. So I'm trying to figure out what to say without spoiling too much of the book. Yes. Basically, we've got the Double Trouble Society yes. and they know, they know that in the place they are in, mm-hmm. in Crowwood Peak, there's, there's a little magic around. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's a possibility. Extraordinary things can happen. Yes. And they know this. The, uh, the supernatural is is well within their wheelhouse. They they know that this is uh, a complete possibility, as do pretty much everyone in the town. It's not just the kids. All the adults are, are pretty savvy to it now as well. They're suspicious in all the right ways. They, they don't are. think it's first day nerves. But also we've got to deal with the fact that I don't want to spoil anything from the first from the first book, uh, but we are carrying on the story from the first book because there is someone who is very angry about something uh, that happens at the end of the first book who is coming back to seek revenge. It's so hard to talk about. It. I know. Not it's, it's such a, a fun story and it's really pacey. Like stuff keeps happening in a really good way. Oh, thank you. I'm it's glad. so exciting. One of my favourite characters was Spencer. I just thought... I love Spencer too. It was really cute yeah. and I was such a big fan. And in the book, the, the girls are very good at kind of discovering stuff. They're quite brave. Mm-hmm. They're clever. They work together. And now they have the whole society with them to help them out as well. Was it quite nice to have a whole gang around? Yeah, absolutely. Because the, the Double Trouble Society in the first book is kind of just Maggie and Ivy. So to watch their their gang grow and to all of them have their own specific things that they're good at. They yeah. all have a strength that all comes into play. And I, I, you know, I think that's so much fun. And when I was a kid, I was terrible at certain subjects like maths and science. I just wasn't very, very good at them. My strength was, you know, English and art and drama and music. Like I loved all like, the artistic stuff. But if you put an equation in front of me, I just, my brain just couldn't hack it, unfortunately. Sure. Yeah, I get that. And so I, I love that, you know, the whole Double Trouble Society, they all have their strengths and they all get a chance to to show them. Carrie, thank you so much for telling us all about the book. Oh, thank you for having me. I, I love talking about this book. Thank you for giving me a chance to. Always, not a problem. And it's out in all bookshops right now, I imagine. Right now, yes. In all good bookshops, you can walk in and purchase your copies of both of them right now. Perfect stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Cheers. <laughs> 
November was kind of getting in a rather cosy and cold mood, so I chose Miraculous Sweetmakers by Tasha Hastings. It's set in the 1600s, all about a girl who's recently lost her brother and is also an incredible sweetmaker. She meets a rather mystical figure who convinces her he might be able to get her brother back to life. Your book is a beaut of a book, um, and I, I very rarely read books that are set in the 1600s. Um, so tell us a little bit about it. Sure. Um, so during the Great Frost of 1683, two girls sell sweets on the frozen River Thames in London and find themselves drawn into the mysterious world of a magical conjurer. And I should say the book is illustrated by Alex T. Smith as well. So you get even more magical pictures there too. Oh yeah, the illustrations, we can't forget those because they are beauts. And they, I mean, obviously your writing is incredible and you can really feel the story from the writing, but the, the pictures do add a little extra, don't they? Oh, they're absolutely wonderful. He's done such an amazing job and it's been an absolute delight working with him. So um, in the book, we meet Thomasina. At the beginning of the book, uh, something happens where you I guess, yeah. Yeah, something happens. So she, a tragic event happens in her family. I think it's also important to say at the stage that I myself have asthma and Thomasina has asthma too. And so does a family member. She witnesses something happening and years later she meets this mysterious figure at night who is magical and promises her he can bring one of her family members back from the dead if she goes with him to this magical other frost fair, which is a enchanted frost fair that appears only at night filled with dazzling delights and magical escapades and frost feasts and frost folk. So, um, and then she realises that maybe all is not what it seems. It's really hard to talk about it and not give too much away. So I'm going to try and make this as like vague but general but also kind of to the point as possible so in the real world where Thomasina is living there is also a frost fair happening on the river in London which it was that a thing back in the time absolutely so this period is really interesting actually because I would say during maybe I would say maybe the 1300s to maybe 1700 1750 there was a period that was called the little ice age which was a period where it was a lot colder than it was today and the river Thames in London froze over completely multiple times meaning that people could walk across its surface and there were multiple frost fairs actually that were held on the frozen river Thames and in my book I concentrate on the great frost which is when it was incredibly more frosty than ever really and there were circuses there were tents sweets and there were all sorts of entertainment like fire eaters the king visited it was really a spectacular event and so I've based this book partly on real life historical events that definitely happened during that time I love it so much and yes like we say uh, she meets a mysterious character who uh, takes her to another frost fair a a kind of um, a nighttime version so to speak absolutely it's sort of the dark mirror to the frost fair that happens and in this other frost fair you know it's, it's sort of ruled over by this shadowy mysterious figure that you find out about called Father Winter and there are there's a sort of new magical spectacle that happens every night when Thomasina one of the main characters um, goes to visit so you know there could be a, a magical enchanted theatre one night or there could be um, a magical dance that people have to do and yeah so there's all sorts of entertainments but a secret at the very heart of it that she needs to find out. And finally, in December, I chose Juniper's Christmas from Owen Colfer. I love this book so much. It's all about Juniper, who is trying to convince Santa to go back into the sleigh and get his job done. It was such a great book. And from the very minute I started reading it, I was hooked in. Because you've got a brand new Christmas book out. Uh, Juniper's Christmas. Initially, I thought I will try and do to Christmas what I did to Adventure Stories with Arkham's Pile in like Scrooge it up and, you know, make everyone horrible. And I just couldn't, you know, uh, I just kept remembering my kids and their faces at Christmas. And my wife loves Christmas. Like she's a real Christmas girl. And 
Uh, I'm kind of the, the Scrooge of the family. I don't want to put up decorations and they just leave needles. Like, let's get a fake tree. I don't want those needles all over my carpet and the resin getting into the, into you know, in between the floorboards is ridiculous and everybody just overpowers me and puts up the tree. So, but as I wrote this book, a strange thing happened in that I started to enjoy the characters and uh, the idea of Santa Claus and what he represents. And maybe now more this this year just seems the world is crazier than it has ever been in my lifetime. And uh, so I just started to really enjoy it. And, and when I sent it in, then it, it uh, very quickly, I, people said, right, this has to go out this year and we're going to put it out at Christmas. And it's, it's taken me a while to suppress my curmudgeonly instincts. Um, but I'm, I'm actually, you should come. I'm just, I'm doing nice readings with jokes, you know, giving out to anybody. Nobody goes away depressed. So it's it's a whole. This, I think it's changed me as a person. I think I'm going to try some hopeful books from now on. See see what happens. The spirit of Christmas has got inside you. I love that you were like saying you were almost disappointed there that you weren't uh, that you were hopeful. You seem to be oh I'm hopeful now. I suppose. Yeah, I'm. I'm almost, yeah, I'm annoyed. That's <laughs> pigeonholing me there, but incorrectly, I'm annoyed that someone has made me feel optimistic because you know it's almost as bad as having pride you know optimism comes before a bigger fall than pride so i'm expecting something horrible to happen well i I hope not at least before christmas i I hope not at christmas time that'd be a bit rubbish but you've got um maybe the reason you're so optimistic is you've got a lovely character juniper who is just like an absolute joy uh to read about right she's kind of inspired by some of the amazing uh, girls of literature you know from Pippi Longstockings to Anna Green Gables and, and that kind of amazing positive character that I imagine, even though I have no confirmation, I imagine Kate Bush is also like that, that just by having them waltz into your life or pirouette in Kate's case, you just feel everything is better. You know, everything is good just from meeting this person. And uh, and I want the Juniper to be like that, where just when she comes into your, the room, you know, whatever, whatever this girl wants to do, I want to help her do that or achieve that. I definitely don't want to stand in the way. And she manages to actually change some of the characters in the book. They completely changed their ways. One in particular, the, the, the Parky, he's a real nasty piece of work. He's almost like a Scooby-Doo bad. <laughs> and then he, he becomes Scooby-Doo good uh so and that's because juniper is so nice and uh positive and she always wants to do the right thing and i think that having that kind of person in your life uh in your job it's such it's such an addition to your own the quality of your own life just to have a good person around because you make you feel guilty if you do something that's a little bit off or wrong and in a way the artemis books were like that because you had the fairy holly and she was like that character to him that he didn't want to do bad things anymore because he might disappoint her. And I think Juniper is like that. People would hopefully uh, would just want to get in whatever her agenda is. They want to get in on that and be with her and pull it in the same direction. Yeah, you're right. She kind of brings everybody up, doesn't she? She's, you know, she's obviously gone through some tough times because we meet her and her dad has passed away and, and then her mum goes missing and it's all all a bit crazy. But you do want to help her and you're really rooting for her as a character. We take this amazing girl and she's but she's been through a lot and she's going through a lot and just as she's coming out of it something else happens and you're like oh what what else does this girl have to do and then she just says you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna find santa claus that's what i'm gonna do and he's gonna help me fix my problems 
And you're thinking that is the most, yes, why not? Let's go. Let's do this. Because we should mention we meet a rather disillusioned Santa Claus, which now I'm thinking, having talked to you now about how you feel about Christmas, did did you kind of influence Santa? Did Santa influence you? I, I did look at Santa and I kind of applied the same thing to him. Okay, Santa's happy. He's got his reindeer. He's, everything's going great. He's drinking his cocoa. Well, what if he doesn't have any of that? And what if, it, you know, he's fed up? And, and imagine if you were Santa Claus. And this was coming back. This, this was in the post. Here's here's 45 tons of presents that we sent to the UK that were dumped because the kids didn't want that particular phone or they didn't want that particular game. How would you feel about that? And then you lose your wife. Uh, you might feel, well, you know what? I've given enough to this job. I am out of here. And so that's the Santa we meet. So I, I do think you're getting a bit of an eyeful into my own personality. <laughs> there we go that is my pick of the 12 best books of the year month by month if you've not checked them out definitely go and read them uh, if you want to go back and listen to the full interviews you can hear them all here at funkidslive.com or wherever it is you get your podcast from in the meantime i'll see you next year for more books happy new year hello everyone i'm cressida cowell author of how to train your dragon and i'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series which way to anywhere It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading!